Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The comedian and performer Ruby Wax needs no introduction for those of you listening from the UK, where she has been one of our biggest TV personalities for decades. But in recent years, she's become equally well known for her work on mental health and her advocacy of mindfulness-based therapy. Her new book, I'm Not As Well As I Thought I Was, is an account of her recent breakdown and time in a psychiatric clinic. She joined the psychotherapist and author Julia Samuel on stage in London last week, for a serious and at times harrowing conversation about mental health, leavened by her trademark wit. I love your book. This is your seventh book, and I think it's really one of your best books because it kind of takes us through your personal experience of how you kind of got through and didn't get through your breakdown, but also all the kind of different aspects of your life. But... What sense have you made of yourself since you've written the book? Did it help you understand yourself? I, I only wrote the book so I could understand Them. a few things. <laughs> so I understand some things, but, it, you know, there's so many deep imprints that are left over, you know, that the scar just becomes less and less. But I still have the propensity to fall into the same thing that drove me into the mental institute in the first place. I still have it. You know, you, you have... Um, you can feel it soaring through you, what, whatever DNA gives you. But I did write the book to figure things out. Because if I read it, it's real. If I think it, it's not. Because I think people have a kind of misunderstanding, isn't it, that you get over a breakdown or that you... And depression has such a huge spectrum, doesn't it, from kind of feeling very low to what you had. So... Do, can you kind of give us some idea for you what your experience of the breakdown was? Well, I don't call it breakdown, because I still, that sounds like a 50s sitcom. <laughs> oh, my wife, you know, somewhere on Bewitched, she had a breakdown. And then she had a breakthrough. Yeah, whatever that is. And they <laughs> took a Valium. And, th and then she's happy. And now she's fine. She's yeah. back to yeah. hoovering. Um, <laughs> With her pinion. Back in the saddle. Yeah. Yeah. Twitching her nose. But so what I, do you call it? I, I, well, I, I was talking about it today. To me, you probably don't agree or people don't, is there's mental illness, which is a disease, and then there's anxiety, or, and I'm not diminishing it, but, or, no. you know, a burnout or being frazzled. And to me, having a mental disease and having the normal human palate emotions is like being pregnant and not being pregnant. You don't have imaginative Alzheimer's. You've got it or you don't. But depression is such a terrible word, meaning sadness or, you know, or, or the blues. Feeling a bit low. It's, in another country, the word for this disease is actually a physical. Because uh, it's embodied. It is. This is a onesie. Mental and physical is the same thing. And when I was younger and I had it, we thought I had diseases. So I always had my blood checked. Because it doesn't feel here. It's manifest in this, the body that won't move, you know, that the Satan is taking little chunks out of your brain. And then you're gone, and you have to imitate who you think you used to be. You know, oh, I think Ruby smiled a lot, or she said, and you think somebody's going to bust me and say, you're not you anymore, and they never do. But there is no question that when you have the disease of depression, you cannot move, you don't know where your arm is. Everything is gone, all sensation. 
And that's why people want to commit suicide, because they're no longer themselves. And I say in the book, I didn't want to kill myself. I just didn't want to live anymore, because it hurt so much. Because the level of the pain is so enormous. But you, it think, is, it you can't find yourself. Yeah. And also, it's... It, How come the, you have water and I don't? Because I... <laughs> I'll just drink this. <laughs> Thank you. That's perfectly normal to me. Well, I mean, that is a... I, I, in some ways, I'm thinking of going into the level of depression for you in the way that you've described it. But also, I kind of feel it is so well explained in the book that people needed to kind of discover the, the absolute void of emptiness. You called it a holocaust at some level, and that you couldn't see people, you couldn't be yourself. It's like you completely lose yourself. But the mechanism of survival you've just done there was humor. The thing that you kind of developed from being in a, ch a child where you were felt traumatized and unseen and thought of as shit, you developed this incredible mechanism for humor. Well, you know, I did turn from Joan Rivers into a swan when I knew how to deliver a line. I wasn't popular with the boys at all. And then at 16 overnight, I was possessed by comedy. And the next day I got the boys. They were all gay, but <laughs> I didn't know that for many years. But, um, but it, you know, out of, you knew that something in my body said, you're not, you haven't got the looks, but you want the attention. And, you know, at home they're saying, you're such an idiot, you're never going to be anything. You're a, a, a sad sack and a mental moron. You eventually, something either goes under. I'm sure if I had brothers and sisters, they wouldn't be around me today. They'd be gone. But um, something in me rose up, and all I could grab for, maybe in my DNA, was a sense of humor. And then in the book, except we're making the book sound like it's not funny. It is Because in the mental ward, <laughs> there's material. <laughs> Some woman telling me, I love, the, I love these people, telling me that foxes came into her house and ate her frozen prawns, so she put vegan food outside to get rid of them. You know, in a mental ward, you never ask why. <laughs> just, it's just genius. It's genius. I mean, the first few days when you're there, or weeks, you can't move. Oh, no, I thought it was much better the other way. Okay, thank you. She has more. Yeah, she has more. I'm special, right? I know, I know. You're the real shrink. I've lost you now. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, Humor. How, you, how in, did you discover book, it at 16? Well, I, it, it, it just... Out of necessity, I suppose. When my dad was... When the Nazis came... I don't know why I'm jumping to this. To pick up my dad, he was so funny that he um, survived. You know, that... He made He was laugh. in jail, and he was so funny that they didn't take him away. And when the Nazis did come with the list to take people away, my dad had an epileptic seizure and would pretend, and his friends laughed, but they didn't want to touch a guy on the floor doing this, so they'd come back every week and call his name, and he plots down again. And it became like a running gag or whatever, and so my dad never got taken away. So it was humor, a slapstick, that saved him, in a way. And saved you. So and so it's, but, but in the book, because I developed humor, I became addicted to it, you know, so you diminish, you become smaller and smaller, and the sense of humor takes over until you're just a gagsmith. I mean, I, it was better than that. I hate people that tell jokes, but, you know, I could raconteur for days. And so um, I, it really developed when I... This is unbelievable. I got into the Royal Shakespeare Company eventually when I was here, and people say... There's two mysteries in their lives. One, who shot Kennedy, and two, how did I get into the Royal Shakespeare Company? <laughs> so, um, and Alan Rickman was my mentor, and whenever I go to Chicago, which I did about six times a year because my parents yanked my chain, and I'd go from the airport straight to Rickman's house, and then I'd, he'd, I'd do what happened in Chicago. I'd do my parents, and I usually did it for three hours, and then because I was drinking and smoking, they'd have to put me to bed, but it was genius. Um, he said, this is Vegas, and to make Alan laugh was like winning an, an Oscar. Oscar. Yeah. So I got, fun I got my parents' story was funny. It, it became a show, and Rickman said, write it. And then, and so I covered everything up, and when I got into the in uh, institution, the shrink I had, who you know, 
uh, said, tell me the story, but without the jokes. I still put the jokes in, but um, you know, she, she hit something, she hit oil of something. I know it sounds cliche, but I don't believe in trauma. You know, I said it's an Oprah word, and I would have had to fight in Afghanistan to have it, but boy, did she hit it. And so this book is sort of a journey inward and outward. Because, can I tell them? The premise of the book is that somebody... You can do whatever you like, Ruby. Oh. This is your show. Okie doke. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> then I will. Now what am I, hell am I going to do? Just not drink? <laughs> yeah, you can have the jug. Here you go. Yeah. This is how you manipulate yourself through life. <laughs> Can, can I pause you a second? Yeah. Because I'm really interested, because there are two lines that you have traveled down, which is one, you inherited trauma, which you don't believe in, but you kind of know no, that now you I did. Do. Yeah. You didn't used to believe in that. You inherited from your parents, and the trauma that they had experienced meant that they couldn't tolerate emotions or feelings or express love and terrorized you. But you also inherited from your father this capacity for comedy as survival. And there is something about comedy that when you made a joke and the audience laughed, there's this connection where they are in your world with you and there's this moment of absolute connection where you feel alive. But also what you're saying, if I've understood you, is that as you develop that mechanism of being funny and that it's kind of addictive because you want more and more of that connection as you lose your sense of yourself... And so not having had therapy for 25 years, you're sh who you call the shrink, who she talks to, and we have kind of live sessions. Oh, yeah, the, the transcripts there. Yeah. They're really good. They're really interesting. But that's the shrink you gave me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that you, she kept on trying to work with you within a kind of window of tolerance where you could feel your feelings and not come in and use your survival mechanism. Is that about right? I don't know what she was doing, otherwise I'd be a shrink. Uh, but um, even though I got it... You're qualified. I'm qualified, so don't hire me. Because I, I was terrible as a shrink. Because I'd go, oh, come on, just get to the punchline. As an editor, I just wanted to edit them. I don't know. I'm not sure how you got onto the training, to be honest. The same way I got into the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, <laughs> but where no, we... I, I don't know. I, I know that it's addictive. I know that it was a defense. And so when the, the, I tolerate myself because, as she kept pointing out, you wouldn't have survived if you didn't become this, an egomaniac, you know, a narcissist or whatever. So it, you start to forgive yourself, and then those things sort of drop away. I mean, I'm still those things, but I'm more than those things. And that's sort of the the journey that you're trying to be on. Yes, you are funny, but you're a human behind it. And as addictive it is, as it is, I'll shut it down because I don't have a relationship with anyone if they're just laughing. It's just a way to make a living. And the, I think the, what's true from everybody who's here is that we can be kind of defined by particular parts, like Ruby as a comedian yeah. or a performer, or you as a particular type of person in the job you are. And, it, and what I learned from your book, and it, you in relation to yourself, that when you could give yourself this container where you had many different parts, and you could move into those different parts mm. and different situations, you actually felt more alive. Well, that's health, isn't it? Health that is, is health. the versatility. That defines it, whereas, you know, people like my dad or whatever, they're rigid. They go, this is the way the world is, this is what you are. That's, to me, the definition of an ill health. It is. But the, the versatility and the able, ability. The adaptability. So your, the shrink was trying to, you know, um, to show me the highs and the lows and the depth and the light and the shade. So you're introduced to yourself like you've never met yourself before. And so you both would look at this child and go, what the fuck did they do? Because I was thinking, it's my imagination. And she would be the kind of um, reflection going, this is as bad as you thought it was. Because part of being gaslit is that my parents said, this is your imagination, what we did. And so, I, sometimes I go to Ed, who's my husband, and he goes, uh-uh, it was that bad. But anyway, I, I wouldn't have gone down there if I didn't 
go on that journey, but that's not the journey of the book. The original premise, so this is why it's two stories at once, was when I pitched it to, the, to Penguin, I said, I want to go on journeys. <laughs> and they bought it. You believe it? <laughs> I want to go on real journeys to find meaning. Can we say why you want to go on journeys? Is that home is quite a well, hard That's place. not why. I didn't know that at the time. Okay. I can't be in a home. I, it's, I have the opposite of agoraphobia. If I go in something called home, I have to get out of there really quickly. So it is, I don't know, is there Home an is sort of Spooksville, isn't well, it? Well, Spooksville, and then I find out why, which I could, well, I, first the journey of where, why I wrote the book, but I didn't know why, was uh, during the lock, COVID, or the lock-in or whatever, is that, it's interesting, the lock-in, because I <laughs> found out I was locked in. You were locked in. But when, when, the, when we were doing all that, you know, not going outside, I realized with no uh, distraction, that I um, wasn't that important, and that I had uh, given the best years of my life on the telephone. And I, who was I talking to? And spending a lifetime answering emails to people I didn't even like. And that's when you get this, I call it this existential slap in the face going, oh my God, do I want to go on living like this? As wonderful as it is, because we got a roof and we've got our own teeth. So let's, <laughs> let's just understand we're privileged. But, um, and I think younger people got it too during that time because we all woke up and I, that, um, that money, success, and power do not give you happiness. I think everybody's rocked onto that one by now. And it, well, a lot of people did. A lot of they did my for kids' a while. generations I think it's did. sort of fallen back. Well, I don't know. My kids' generation are pretty evolved, way yeah, more good. than, you know, we just had an orgy and then forgot about what we were doing to the planet. Doing to the planet. Yeah. Yeah, and then used it as an ashtray. You know, I started off hopeful too. Um, <laughs> and then you get greedy. But anyway, the, the point of it is, is I thought, let's go on some journeys to figure out that might inspire me. So I lived in a Christian monastery because I wanted to feel faith, because I don't feel it. I tried to get people out of Afghanistan to really get the, and I am a daughter of a refugee, to get that compassion going. I went to a 30-day silent retreat to feel real peace of mind and other things, um, uh, swimming with whales while they migrated. I did, I'm not saying you should do this. This is not um, a how-to. <laughs> yes, please go swimming with whales. It'll change your life. <laughs> Would be a huge bestseller. But I did those things because I was trying to uh, shock myself out of this numbness. And also, I'm on antidepressants. I don't feel a lot until it's extreme. But I, went, I was going on these journeys, and then I wrote them up, and it was just a travelogue for people that you know, what was it? It was nothing. But uh, to cut a long book short, I ended up in a mental institution. That's where, now, I don't, I'm not happy about it, and it's quite a surprise, but that's where the book starts now. I mean, it's, it, I'm not saying that any of those journeys cause a depression, because we don't know. I, and I hadn't had it for 12 years. But the point is, what an odd thing. Somebody's, I thought I was running towards something, and I was running away from something. But, but I, think I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have written this, you know, the plummet down. It would have been a very shallow book, and it would have been a lie, because I did find things in these places, of course. But then I fucked them up every time I did it. I did a potato chip ad, crisp ad, 24 hours after coming out of Silent Retreat, where I had found bliss. But the money was so good that I went and screwed that one up. And then did a book tour that night. I mean, was I in, every time I'd get somewhere, I'd gazump it. And so then that, why did I do that, becomes this, what's interesting. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And, I mean, I think a potato chip, you might have seen it. I go, mmm, yum, this crunchy crunch is sure delicious. <laughs> I was paid a fortune, so I fucked up 30 days of silent retreat. But also, I think, what... what which might have been worth it, but... What? For the money, it might have been worth yeah, it. Yeah, because it's paid for my institution. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I think what I get from what you're saying is, and I think, again, it's true for all of us, is that you can't use an external fix mm. to fix an internal problem. So you can go to an incredible monastery for 30 days, you can swim with whales, but if your internal world feels, as yeah. you described it, completely devoid, empty, like an old sack, you only have this much pipe that will go in, so it kind of falls off. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, what I got from your book is that the more you kind of looked for meaning and wanted it, and you had some great experiences and met amazing women, and you were yeah. funny, and, the, and they were wonderful, but because they didn't touch the sides, that in some way kind of increased your sense of despair, because if that doesn't gonna, isn't going to work... Then nothing is going to work. Nothing's going to mm. work. Yeah, because, well, the, 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 but the silent retreat was... What happens in a 30-day a when you're quiet, when you shut up, and it wasn't a spa, it was a mindfulness retreat. So you have to do 13 hours a day of I mindfulness, and you're counting every second. It is pure. It is the Iron Man of the brain. It is agony. So the first week, every devil voice that has ever lived is telling you, what a sham you are. I mean, it, the, the volume is unbelievable. And then you get obsessed with things like, um, I couldn't remember the song that Phoebe sings in Friends, you know, smelly, the lyrics. Smelly dog. You get obsessed, and then your habits start coming up, like I really wanted to go shopping. Oh, and I would reach for phones that weren't there. So I'd, I'd pick up stones and then take them home because I like that stone. You got, and then the next day I'd return it to the shop the ground, and I get another stone. So you're watching how you act out, but you've got no distraction. So that's in the first week. And then, <laughs> the, then after that, it's like as if your mind was arm wrestling. That's what it, and the, the critical side gives up, it gets exhausted. What I call the shitty committee. Right. It gets exhausted. Mm. So it can't even, it starts, tries to attack, but it's like a firecracker that goes out. So it goes, you stupid. And you think, and you know what you forgot, you, and it's gone. And so you start having these moments where you're adorable. I mean, you can taste food like you've never tasted before because there's nothing, you're forgiving yourself. And you're starting to, um, you can watch an ant walk up and down a tree. And I wanted to call Eckhart Tolle and say, Eckhart. I'm in the moment. I'm present. I'm in the moment. And I make a joke in the book that I go, Eckhart, it's Ruby. <laughs> Ruby Wax. Are you? Oh, fuck you, Eckhart. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you do. You do get that. I mean, it, it's, if you do enough sit-ups, you're going to get a six-pack. So somebody says, do 13 hours, even if you're just sitting there. Something's going to change. But you do, I started to watch my ego or whatever you want to call it, and rather than whip myself, I started to be amused by it. Like sometimes, for example, you had to run. There was 13 hours a day and you'd sit in 45 minute segments, right? Then you do walking meditation, sitting meditation. What? It's Vipassana and it has the same rules wherever you do this. So I took, you can sign up where you ring the bell to start the 45 minutes and another gong to end it. So I signed up <laughs> for the three o'clock session and I got in there and this is what you're noticing. I'm noticing that it's kind of a thin crowd and I'm upset like I'm doing a matinee and not very many people have shown up. <laughs> and then I do the gong and I start thinking, the men were really beautiful because when I did um, the old retreats in the old days, everybody smelled like feet and patchouli oil. Now they're these beautiful men in their 20s with their little knots up here oh, yeah. and their big nappy, swami nappies. And I'm staring at them because, and then I think, oh no, Ruby, they're, they're going to see and think you're an old perv. So I watched them through this. And then I thought, <clears throat> say something funny, Ruby, so they'll know you're quite talented and um, that you're not just a bell ringer. This is going through my mind. I'm pointing my toes, They're, they've got their eyes shut. They don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then at the end, I'm about to do comedy. And at the end, I ring the gong, and I think that was pretty, pretty good. good. And then they all stand up because there's Buddhas behind you, right? And they, they do it after, and they bow. And I, in my mind, think they're bowing at me. So I take a curtain call. <laughs> and then I sit down, and they're clearing the room. But I seriously am waiting for them to ask me for an autograph. So you watch your behavior, and you start giving people, you're not talking, parts. Like one guy I thought was really after me, and he was staring at me. 
At the end, I said, did you ever know I was sitting next to you? And he said, no. I just heard some snoring. <laughs> and another woman, I hated her because she wore purple and I hated. And then when you meet them at the end, you know, she worked for the UN. I thought she was an idiot. And she would work because she chewed with her mouth open and I'd like just stare at her. And you realize that you're like a casting agent for reality. So I decide you're my friend, you aren't. And you start to get these epiphanies of, that's how I live. I imagine I'm the center of the universe, and then you play this part, you play, but in the silence, it's exaggerated. And so you start to see what you've created, and it's a sham. But what it did was give you insight into the cartwheels that you do in your mind yeah, for but attention you don't punish yourself and this time. You think, oh my God, I see what, what I am, but I like it. And at the end, I thought, I am the most wonderful human being. And then I got on the plane, being all shaky and vulnerable, uh, after 30 days and sat next to a girl and wanted to show her how evolved I was. Um, and she said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I've been on a 30-day retreat. I said, have I missed anything? And she said, yes, a war. Because I didn't know the Ukraine war had started. And then the, the journeys start coming faster and faster. But as you're talking, and I guess as you're writing, you then do begin to get insights for yourself. So you have yes, more you clarity now about what led to the mental institution. And yet you're saying that you you can move in and out of it all the time, and that's the difference between being pregnant and not being pregnant. I, I'm not pregnant now. No, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, yeah. But, um, you know, yesterday, because my book came out today, and I'm sick, I'm pretty, on a, from one to 10, on a, the anxiety level, I'm a 10. But this is not depression. This is being human. But it's, it's completely different. It's extreme. But because depression, this is a reaction be to an external here. event, which yes. is a natural... Yeah anxiety when your book's coming out. But also, all the old devils, you know, the devils doing press-ups, they're still wanting to come and get you, aren't they, for the attention? Is it going to be successful? So yeah. old, old What if somebody calls me a wanker? There, I'd rather say it than them, you know, because it's about me. It. And I usually write books about the mind or mindfulness or evolution or whatever. It's never really this way. So this is particularly vulnerable because you're following me no. into the deep yeah. dive. And I think, well, why did I say that? Except I got so interested in, she was such a good shrink, that I thought, can I record you? I forgot I was talking too. And then you reveal stuff, and then you find out stuff. And that was pretty shocking. Except still in that mental institution, it's my home. The things that happen in there. Well, you know, one gonna, woman, are you going to write a Ed, comedy? Ed, Ed came, I kept calling him to bring me things. You know, like a Sherpa, chocolate chip cookies, um, lots of pajamas, because I thought I was just doing an overnighter. <laughs> and they said, you're going to be in here a long time. <laughs> and then I was going to tip him, but I remembered <laughs> it was my husband. But he would come back and forth all the time with, and he went along with it. I mean, this guy takes a lot of crap from he, me. I don't know why he married me. But um, he, he was, you know, and my kids really know how to deal with it. They go, mommy's gone, you know, me, this is no longer her. And then when I start, when I get my sense of humor So was there back, a moment that everybody knew you had to go into the institution? Was there that? Oh, yeah, they can see it. And they go, yeah, they're, they're not functioning it. A functioning. I mean, you see a clock and it jumps. It was only a minute and then suddenly it's an hour later. I mean, you're really out of it. Terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I got it in the, um, in the Christian monastery where I should, usually I would like, I like rooms that are really safe and small and I can tell if the doorknob moves because I used, my parents burst in on me a lot and the, ultimately they locked me in the house. So I didn't, I never dated, I didn't really know why. It's because I couldn't get out or in. But then at 18 I got hip to it and I started um, crawling out the window and then then I was beaten for it. But at least I got out. The child that really would locked in wouldn't be able to speak. But I, my whole life has been an act of revenge. I don't quite know how to respond to all the things you've just said about being locked in, being beaten, not going out, as if it's like a normal thing, the way you well, said it. Well, it is my normal, but I don't really, I used to make it really amusing. I didn't know I was locked in. Even Alan's widow said to me while I was writing the book, she said, you know, Alan stayed with you a lot and he would go out at night. Why didn't you go with him? 
And it never occurred to me that I wasn't allowed to. I, that was my because normal. Because that was your, in, our, in, in therapy speak, that's your internal working model that you're not I allowed to. I didn't think, I, I just assumed I wasn't, and my father would say, what if somebody murders you? You know, that, and so you think, oh, well, I shouldn't be going out. And when Ed and I, when I was 35, we were in Miami with my parents, he wouldn't let us out either. He would not well, let us out. The outside for him is threat, right? Yeah. Your dad. Yeah. yeah, it's only for my own good and wouldn't let men near me. So you can imagine my relationship with them. So there's a, you know, you pass that fear. But I, but I became defiant and that's how I ended up it's getting how you out. Survive. Yeah. Yeah, but then you feel like such a wanker because I'm not in the Ukraine, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But. but given that you have been so personal, and it's a very intimate, it's a very brave book, and I really kind of applaud your courage, what do you want people who read it to kind of understand? I don't really write for other people. <laughs> I mean, no, but I, I think, Just no. Saying. No, no, I mean, you're, 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 you are writing for other people, but you're not going, and here's my message. There is something that happens toward the end of the book that I think when people get that, it's magnificent. And it's not something I came up with. There was a, a library in the... You keep um, looking at me as if you need my permission. I know, but you're my shrink now. <laughs> um, you have the floor, Drews. That's okay, but I like going through you. Okay. Then I can blame you. Uh, <laughs> and this goes really wrong. But uh, there was a book in the library by Richard Rohr. Do you know who he is? Oh my God, um, well... He's good. He's good. And he was talking about... Um, but we don't want to sell his book today. No, no, no. I didn't say his name, but it, it was magnificent about the first half of your life being about um, that you need the ego, that you need the narcissism, you need to build the identity, and it's when your turbo goes down. And then in the second half or whatever, it's more, it's not like you're giving it away or you're chilling out or anything like that, but it's what we were talking about. You can hold everything. You can hold the agony, you can hold the whatever. It, you're not being the dragged by it anymore. permission. Yeah. So you can hold the being locked in the and you can behold allowing yourself to go out. You can hold the pain yeah. and the terror and you can give yourself permission to have joy and pleasure so that you, rather than, I think when we get into a kind of terrible state, we have a battle between the two sides mm. and the pain can win and sort of knock out the pleasure or the joy because it's that kind of very loud, very critical, very threatening voice. And by having a container, you can allow all the voices mm. so that they're not competing, so that you can move between the two and that can free you then to be more fully yourself. Mm. Is that, that you sense? or Richard Rohr? Did That's, you read him? N well, no, I haven't. Right. But I understood Similar. from yeah. what you wrote in your book, because I did read your book. Right. What you said in your book is, is my translation of Richard Rohr. Yes, yeah, well, the, and Scott Peck writing The Road Less Traveled. I mean, there's great quotes in it. But it opened it up, so yes, the container got wider. So you can live with the horror, but you can live, you know, there's a looseness about it, and a forgiveness, and a kind of um, wisdom, I guess, which we don't talk a lot about. And I thought, if I stopped dyeing my hair, would I pass? <laughs> it's one of those women that, you know, you see in National Geographic squatting <laughs> and making chapatas. We don't have wise women anymore. Well, maybe we are, but... Um, maybe. Could be, but we dye our hair. But the point is, is that it was an inspiration. Suddenly, you had something to go for. And I didn't have such fear of aging toward the end or death. It started to widen up, you know, my lens rather than close, and that was the help of the shrink, and also another method they used on me, which is new on the market. They, they, um, they put, it looks like a 50s hair dryer. It sounds so terrifying, this thing. But it's an um, RTSM, it's repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's related to the old-fashioned ECT. ECT, but that's electric, and that has some side effects, like you can't remember your name. Or your planet of origin. <laughs> Just pull the thing off your thing. I think it's Did okay. I pull it off? Yeah, it's all right there. Oh, I think okay. it's away. Um, so, but the, now they use magnets, and there are no side effects, we hope. But, the, but they're, um, it's at Stanford, and it's at John uh, Hopkins. In America, it's all over. In this country, 
Good luck finding one. But it has a 65% success rate. It didn't work on anybody else while I was there, and you have to do 20 sessions in a row. Is it and horrible? It, you said it was like no, someone I, banging on the... Yeah, it's like it's, 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 the, it's a knocking, and it's recalibrating the neurons. And you, some people would say, well, that's nonsense. But I was, in the, I was the one that it succeeded with, because you don't get out of a hospital in three weeks. So, but it's not every day you feel better. It, for the whole 20 sessions, I felt nothing. And then I started, you come, when you come back to the living, it's like your rocket landed and you're back on Earth, but you've been in the cosmos. Was it literally like that moment? Just at the very end, I thought, well, I'm home again. I'm back in my body. So you could, you I felt... I could feel flesh. And, um, and so I, I'm really grateful for that piece of equipment. I said, if you've ever had Botox, the pain is nothing. <laughs> but it, it's a magnificent piece of equipment. Because it changes the neuroplasticity. So because if you, depression, untreatable depression that can get stuck, yeah. people often think of it as pathways, like a rabbit run that it gets, your rabbit gets stuck going round and round in the pathway and you can't get out of the pathway. And also they get sluggish, you know, the neural connections. I said it was like um, speed dating for neurons. <laughs> it switches them That's so that you get, they're connected to faster, they're, you know, it's rather than the sluggish ones. Again, we're making something so complex sound simple. But the point is, it's like EMDR. We don't know why it works, but it, it does, does work. So a lot of things are mysteries, which I never bought. I always believed in science. You know, I need to smell it or taste it, but now things like this and EMDR are unbelievable. Uh, EMDR is the type of therapy they did on me, which I thought, again, was Oprah speak. It's, um, they go like this. You watch, you watch something going back and forth, and supposedly it hooks up, and again, if there's a neuroscientist here, I'm sorry, hooks up, the, trauma is frozen in time, and so it hooks up the right side, which is kind of the emotional, bigger picture side, to the left, which is verbal and rational and logical. So by connecting them, you can finally express what that white noise was. And that's what this is trying to do. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. So when she made me do this on a screen, because I did it on Zoom and they put some ball on the top, I thought, what am I, watching some tennis game? I was so furious. I think, I mean, I Going like this, back and forth. But then you start to speak because you're so pissed off about watching a ball going back and forth. But I think the process of it, what it does is that the, the traumatic memories in the amygdala and the movement of your eyes, the bi-directional backwards and forwards, means that it adjusts the, the distortedly stored memory, which has distorted beliefs in it, like I am bad or I am in danger because it's under threat, like in the moment. It has no sense of time, so you can have a traumatic memory for 40 years and it updates the memory with it takes the distress out and then you can store it in the cognitive part oh, of your right. brain. Oh right, so you, you now understand So it. now yeah. that you, you have a memory but it is without the distress in your body so you can think about it and talk right. about it but you're not thrown back in time to 40 years before or in your yeah. case to your childhood. Does that make sense? You should be a shrink. I know. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And write a book. Maybe. But the thing that I think is very relevant about your book is that the most personal is the most universal. So anyone that's writing, I think we don't think of an audience, but you write your closest to truth. And it felt to me like you really kind of excavated yourself to get as truthful, funny truthful, but also some of it is very raw and very painful, and that people will recognize themselves in your narrative. So, I mean, how was it writing that? Well, you know, writing is a horror show. You would rather chew off your arms. But... Um, Just to say it mildly. Like. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't remember. You know, when you... It's, I don't remember depression either. That's useful, Because your, right? your body tries to, you know, put it behind you. It's, I can't see the future either. I have a problem. That's why I take risks. Is I never picture anything in the future. That stops you being frightened, right? Yeah, that stops all the fear. But I also have trouble... Rem I know it was agonizing, but toward the end, you start to get... You know, then it's fun. It's like a sculptor with clay. And then you're just shaving a little bit instead of seeing this mound of shit that you've just poured out. But... Um, and then the day of publication, so like today... 
is horrifying because it's so vulnerable. Well, now I can't change it. I mean, if it's anybody fixed. gets a book, I'm going to start crossing things out and going, that's not what I meant. Oh, why did you write that? So, um, you know, but it's out. You had a baby and it's with the flaws and what's... It's a wonderful book, Ruby. Thank you. And I wondered if anyone had any questions for Ruby. Two ladies that I love. <laughs> um, so that's why I wanted to come to works is marvellous. Helped you. me an awful lot, so thank you for that. Thank you. Um, Ruby, you're back from the island. We've, I've just watched that. All How right. did that go? How did that um, play off with all that's happened to you that you've just described? Was that at the end of the book or was it at the beginning? Oh, no, of the book? it would have fit. Did the lights go out or have I fainted? Oh, no, you haven't fainted. Um, <laughs> you guys fucking with me? If you, if you fit. <laughs> Julia's trying to get me as a client. Um, <laughs> I need more clients. I, I haven't got any. <laughs> the island. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was brilliant. I would have, if, if that was within the time frame before my deadline, I would have put it in. But right. it was in February. But it fits right into this, seeing how far your mind can take it. Yeah. So I knew I said yes, not because I yearned to be on television, but I thought, who? When would you get this opportunity to go to an? Um, I, first of all, I don't like being outside, so there's a challenge. <laughs> Obviously. But um, to be on an island for ten days in nature, um, with uh, <laughs> and being able to watch what happens to your mind, like a 31-day retreat. At least it's organized. There's gongs that tell you when you know to walk, run, wash the dishes. Uh, but this, you, it's just open. So you, and you lose track. Of, you don't know what time it is. And I thought, that'll be interesting to watch my mind. You could never afford to do this in your real life or it'd be too dangerous. So that's why I signed up. But they didn't say the word cyclone, which happened, yeah. and sandflies. They didn't say that. And had I known those two things, I might have pulled back. But um, that, the cyclone, they say they just saw the weather report. I think they're lying. But the thing you, when you and I spoke at a different time about being on the island, the thing that you said was that having been as ill as you were with your breakdown, nothing oh, yeah. is as bad as that. And so your perception of what, of what is difficult or life-threatening is that the internal world is so much worse yeah. than the external. A cyclone world. is nothing. You know, if you've had depression, bring it on. That's nothing. So um, when it happened, I was pissed off. But there was hardly any fear, you know, and there were noises. And I always thought I'd, because in my house, I'm terrified of every noise. But in a cyclone, and there's lots of noise, I wasn't scared. Because, yeah, mommy and daddy were gone. Because those memories are very hard. Yeah, those are hard, but a cyclone is nothing. But the moisture is the horribleness. You never dry. And to go to the bathroom in 70 mile an hour winds is another series. <laughs> you can't imagine the horror. You have to be in the right direction. There is no right direction. Okay. It's a whirlwind. It's going like this. I'm not Julia. gonna think I'm not gonna think about it. No. Oh, there's somebody up there. Hi. Years, like in the nineties when you were doing a Ruby Wax show and you had a, did a lot of interviews with celebrities and you know, did a lot of funny things on TV. What were you um, feeling then. So what sort of, um, what was your mental state then and what were you feeling at that time? Oh, that was just like, like the first half of your life. I was just high, you know, because suddenly you got, the ugly duckling got the attention and got into restaurants and had popular girls like them. So it was, it was a high. But that's seriously bad for your health. If but it's keeps, like an addiction, isn't it? Well, it, it's everything. And you started to really think, I don't know what I thought. I thought I was as interesting as the... First of all, I, the celebrities were the popular, you know, the prom queens. And then suddenly you're getting attention too. But it's never fame like that. That's big time. So I never had the full disease, which is where you walk in a restaurant and you think, why is nobody looking at me? And then getting really angry because people are. I really did that series to, to study fame. And it became a kind of thesis in my mind, to be honest. And I'd put the Rubik's Cubes together of what I thought, well, it was a secret shrinking. I really didn't care about the show. It was just fascinating to play with these jigsaw pieces. And before that, I did documentaries that I loved, you know, going to Glas Russia during Glasnost or being with Appalachian fundamentalists uh, who threw snakes at each other to show how much they loved God 
that was in Appalachia, and I got to do these women who sold their eggs online, um, five-year-old beauty queens, all before I did it early. And then, um, and then I lost my job. I thought because of Louis Theroux, but it turned out it wasn't him at all. I liked him. But for 12 years, I wasn't, he was like a fatwa on him. But, it, it, <laughs> but the celebrity thing I thought was interesting for a few years. Then it went on and on and on. And then they wouldn't give me my old job back doing documentaries. But there was a paradox about the celebrity, wasn't there? Because you were doing it to examine celebrity. And, and then, then I got the disease. A celebrity I caught it. And got the disease. I know. It's like you're studying Ebola and then suddenly you've got Get it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how dare you not let me on the tube once I was fired? you know, from TV. How do, he said, get in the back of the queue, you idiot. You know, do you know? You're nobody, and it's like weeding off of heroin. But you reinvented yourself. Well, then it's, it's, then it's nice again just to be a human. To be human. Because you're always fearful. Even Sharon Stone, I remember saying, she's watching a line on her knee because it's reminding her of time ticking away, and she's tracking that line. Oh. They really, you, you are held in time, and you're a prisoner to it. And especially for comedians, I didn't interview comedians, but they really, they're, they're, they hit their height at a certain age and then they imitate that age when they're much older. And I always think that's why a lot of them have heart attacks. Because yeah. they're holding on to time. Mm -hmm. That's actually a good point. Where are you now in regards to the parental trauma? So like, how do you think of them now? Or is, is that something you ever heal from or is it an ongoing thing? I didn't think I was traumatized, but, um, yeah. Ruby. I know. Okay. <laughs> it's nice when a shrink says it's big time, you know. Update your database. It's the A-list yeah. of, of um, trauma. Uh, where am I now? In response to your parents, do they still... I, f I feel sorry for them. I feel really sorry, because they must have been so traumatized. But not from the war. I mean, that was, trauma that was traumatic, but I've spoke to some people, you know, who were in the war, and they said, again, is it, is it in the genes or is it experience? People who were, um, who were resilient and kind of very empathetic were the same after the war. I yeah. mean, look at Prima Levy. So I, I assume my parents were damaged before the war, but I don't know what happened. I didn't know them. And I don't think we would have been friends, but um, they weren't my type. <laughs> But I think I'm kind of over it. I feel bad that they're in the book and they, but they would think, when I did Miami Memoirs, which was the first documentary, and you watch my mother walking behind me on all fours, screaming into the camera, civilized people don't bring dust in a building. <laughs> she took, she had seven takes of that. And she, they thought when they saw the film that it was about how crazy I was. <laughs> so you see what I mean? They, yeah. They would think this book is insane. They that I were. made it all up. They aren't here. No. Ah. Hi, hi, Ruby. Uh, I'm a child of survivors as well, or refugees as well. Where are you? Oh, no, hi, hi. hi. Um, talking about Miami memoirs, I was actually going to ask you about that, because um, I remember it clearly. And I'm just wondering, um, watching the program, which Ruby were we watching? Were we watching Ruby the Celebrity? Oh, you we mean in Miami Memoirs? In Miami, Miami Memoirs, Ruby the Celebrity? Oh, no, I, it was early on. I was about 29. Right. Yeah, so I so. was... That, the, the, I'd never made a documentary. You know, Mark Chapman heard about my parents and knew that that was great material. So, and, and the objective of the, of the exercise was to... For, for, to ex exorcise yeah, what was going I'm, on in Miami. Asking, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but uh, with no ego, I didn't really, right. you know, I wasn't uh, thinking, oh, this is a career for me. I knew I was a good comedy writer, so I wrote for Dawn and Jennifer and not the 9 o'clock news. So this is kind of the first thing I ever did. And it made me laugh, because I had already turned my parents into comedy, and they, were, they delivered. I mean, there's a scene where he says, that's insane. Oh, that you want to go out. And we're on a plastic sofa, and so <laughs> you hit this, and I'm going out, and he's not letting me out. And he says, listen, it's dangerous out there. A guy comes up to, I rolled down the window. I said, hey, buddy, where's, you know, a, he's looking for some highway. The guy comes toward me. I roll up the window, and I take off. Are you getting how crazy that is? He rolls down the window to ask for instructions. The guy comes over, and he takes off. 
because the guy's going to kill him, and how we have to dodge bullets because the shampoo is like three cents less. You know, my parents couldn't give up a bargain. We're in a Cuban neighborhood with a, like a, a golf cart to get sh like lots of shampoo in bulk, and you hear the guns going off. I mean, they were really wild, wild, and they were as they're so good that um, years later I had to do the red carpet. You know, where you interview famous people, and Martin Scorsese was coming, to, and I was really scared because he's a big geez. he's a big deal. My girlfriend happened to be his worked for him at the time. So when I put my mic up to, to ask him a question, he turned to me and went, civilized people don't bring dust in a building. <laughs> and he said, I, my, Melanie showed me that documentary. He said, your mother's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm really, really intrigued to read the book. I followed your journey with mindfulness and all of the exploration that came before this book. And I'm wondering where you're at with, with all of your practices now, having been in the institution and gone through EMDR. What, what does your daily practice look like now? What would you say to the person who was practicing before? Would you make any changes? I, you know, when, when you have a depression, you can't do mindfulness because you haven't got a mind. Or people go, well, you should go to the gym. There's nobody at home. I don't even think you could see a therapist because you're gone. So now that it's, I'm out of the trough, I do do it 45 minutes a day. I have to because um, I need to know what the weather conditions are inside. So I know how bad it is today. And of course, I let out my fear yesterday and I'm kind of ashamed about it because I usually don't. But I know I'm at 10, and in the old days, you just assumed that everybody else was, you know, it was their fault. I know it's kind of not their fault because my reactions are so jagged. Extreme. Extreme now. So I do do mindfulness because I really, you know, I, I like the science of it, and that's what fascinated me, not the fluffiness. It's not, what is it, mindfulness, getting mindful through origami. That's the latest book. <laughs> Mindfulness. Not by you. No, I wish I did. It sells zillions of copies, but it's badly mistaken. I mean, it, they, they, they teach it at Oxford. They don't teach witchcraft. So, you know, mindfulness has more research done on it than almost anything else. And what happens with the amygdala and the anterior cingulate cord, you know, things get developed. It's a muscle and that you can exercise certain bits, but depression overrides it all. And I'll tell you what, what else, and I've said this to Mark Williams, who founded MBCT, is if you have a trauma, I didn't know it was coming. I didn't know it was there because it gives you a sort of um, overview so that you can, you know, the, the emotions go in and out, but it doesn't dig down. That's why I didn't do therapy. You know, I, I had no idea what was under the rotten floorboards. So it, it's, got, it's got its usefulness but it also has its drawbacks. So does too much therapy. I mean, that is re really interesting, actually, and I wish I'd asked that question. It was a good question, in the sense that mindfulness is a very good mechanism to regulate your system to regulate. and to keep you balanced, but it doesn't deal with underlying... I don't real... think it does, yeah. I, d I don't think it does. It's no. not intended to. No. It's, it's meant to just... As a circuit breaker, in a way, if you're in fourth gear or ten, it brings you back down, it regulates you, it calms yeah. you, but it doesn't deal with underlying distressing, traumatic or difficult issues. It, really, any therapy can do that. Mm. So we're agreed. We're great. Good evening, Julia. Good evening, Ruby. Talking of therapy, so um, when you're in that state of depression and you, uh, re you are recommended to go to see a therapist, so have you had terrible experience with therapists? Is there a preference, male or female, that you feel more comfortable opening up to? I had one guy um, who was a Freudian and, you know, made me do stream of consciousness lying on his... I said, come on, I didn't get it, you know, so... And, but he wanted me to go three days and then four days. And, you know, you're in a vulnerable position. I mean, it was a real deal. But I just didn't get this stream of consciousness. If you're an actress, I said, what do you want me to talk about? Penises? I'm fine. You know, what, it, nothing can be 
a surprise to me because I'm improvising all the time. So I couldn't really get it. Maybe it helps other people. I'm sure So the Freudian be. stuff I couldn't deal with. I also, before Ab Fab, did all of those alternative things because that was my, the way I wrote comedy. So I did all of those where you have to bash a pillow and call it daddy. And I had to rebirth coming out. Somebody dragged me out of a bathtub by my legs, <laughs> weeping. And uh, I had to marry myself on a beach at one point with a bunch of Puerto Rican women. We were all going, and Dr. Barbara, we were all in wedding dresses. I did this for filming. Um, we had to hold hands, and then we had the wedding march on a tape recorder, and then we had to step forward <laughs> one by one, and I had to say, do me, Ruby. Take me, Ruby. To be, and I got really confused. I said, do you, Barbara, or do me, Ruby? And she, okay, then I got it. Anyway, then I took myself on my own honeymoon. Uh, I I, the more crazy people were, I really loved that alternative stuff. So I did that, but I did it for comedy reasons. And then in that very film uh, called Ruby Takes a Trip that I did 20-something years ago, um, I went, I was a great researcher, so I found these people who um, channeled cats and whatever, madness. But then I made sure at the end of the film that it got more and more poignant. So I found somebody who does vision quests. Now, I could have done chief running cheesecake, but I found a guy who works with Vietnam vets and kids who had terminal diseases. So he was the real deal. And he took me into the mountains in Big Sur. He did this as a favor, and they took away, uh, you had to give away something, and I, I gave away my mirror, because I knew I was doing a thing, and I was always fixing my makeup. And then we had to do a sweat lodge, but he was the real deal. And I kept trying to be funny, and he said, shut up already. <laughs> he said that. And then we were sent into the mountains for three days, right? So I said to the camera crew, don't follow me. So I did go. And, um, you know, eventually you get over being st starving, and eventually you get over your fear of death again. And I, I'm in the Redwoods, and I saw them as parents taking care of me. So then you got a new parent image. And um, at the very end, my eyes swell up. On day three, something bit it, and then you heard noise, so you could find your way back down the mountain again. And I got to the circle, and everyone had to speak. And, they were magnificent. Again, silence does it. There was no fat on anybody's lines. You know, they, they said, moving. and then I said, I didn't make this up, I'd heard it before, that God is in the details. Because very similar to Spirit Rock, you start to notice the, how, how the details of everything. And, um, and the cameraman started crying because he had hurt everybody. And then when, as soon as they caught, um, my eye opened again. And, um, that was the best documentary I've, you know, that was a personal Thanks. journey. And I think I went through mindfulness 20 years later because of that experience. That opened you. That way. opened it. And, and that's when I thought there's something else here. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and Pink Floyd did the music for free because it was that, it was that interesting, that journey. Of course, the BBC would never play it again, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> what? It was called Ruby Takes a Trip. Yeah, they'll never play that again. Who knows? They could have taken me out and put Louie in. It's still a good story. Hi, Ruby. Hi, where are you? In the gods. In the oh, gods. Hi. Hello. <laughs> hi. Um, I followed your career for quite a while, and obviously you have contributed so much to so many A-list TV series, and you've also done a lot of performing. I can I ask two questions? What do you prefer, the writing side, and now obviously your book is out just now, or the performing side, and in the light of your health and well-being, and mental health in particular, what do you think is the best way forward for you, the writing side? So I, I'm going to start doing the play in September, and then it'll come to London. Um, and that's my most pleasurable. And that doesn't affect your mental health, the no, performing? No, no, no. But if I did suddenly get, you know, I have gotten depression during something, and then uh, a TV series once, you have to cancel. But it's never happened. You know, it's just luck of the draw. When does it happen? It could happen in a summer vacation. It's random. It's random. You it can't is, predict it. There's nothing... And it's no got nothing to do with what's going... Oh, people go, oh, did you have... You know, a, a car difficulty. accident, you go, read my lips, nothing. People kill themselves after winning the Olympics. 
It's got nothing to do with the situation. Oh, so performing, so please come to the show. <laughs> yeah. The Soho Theater in November and then somewhere else in London. I don't know where, probably here. Hello, Julia. I was interested in what you said quite early on about uh, the need or the attempt by people to try and fix that interior disease with uh, effects of some kind, either be it drugs or alcohol or swimming with whales or whatever the case may be. But it is the case, of course, that people do kill themselves because they don't, because they keep relying on that fix and they try and fix it more and more and more and eventually it will kill, the symptom will kill you. Um, and obviously it's the case with people who are, who are seriously depressed that they do kill themselves. So they do look, look for answers because they know that's on the horizon. You can see that in the distance that if I don't do something about this, that's the, the price that ultimately I will pay. I was just wondering about, you know, Ruby said earlier on about, um, you know, there are times when we, everybody in here during the COVID was confronted with their own humanity. Yeah. No matter how much money you've got in the bank, no matter how successful you are, how beautiful you are, the pandemic will kill you. It's indiscriminate. So we're all confronted with the humanity of that. And uh, as I was, uh, included in that, that group, but what I'm trying to ask is that at the core of that humanity, where do you as a psychiatrist and as you as somebody who's looked for answers in various other therapies of one sort or another, think is the, the, the core of what needs to be fixed? What is the problem? What, what is, where is it needs to be put at peace? Is it a mental thing? Is it an emotional thing? Is it a physical thing? What is it? Do you mind if Julia answers first? Yeah, that's a great so, the, so the, just for those of you, um, if you couldn't hear, the question is, wh when I talked about an external fix can't fill, fix an internal problem, given the pandemic and how that raised so many issues for all of us, what is the thing that enables us to manage the internal problem? And obviously, it's, I don't have an answer, or you know, I would be much more successful than I am. But I think there are a combination of things that we do understand, which is that it's many different things that support us. I think we do need connection to others. We do need to have a, some way of connecting with our internal world and finding a way of navigating and expressing it and discovering what is painful and finding ways of expressing what is painful. And that we need to find a way of kind of moving our bodies, of sleep. So there are physical things and psychological things and a big one that Ruby looked for was meaning, but I don't think you, until you get the, the psychological and the physiological kind of aligned, that the meaning works. But I think if you have them aligned enough, then you can find meaning. And that can be by volunteering, it can be by swimming with um, dolphins, it can be oh, by can, meditating. Can I just, sorry, can I just... Uh, yeah. I, um, I didn't want to shallow it out. That whale thing was um, actually a holiday I was on, but I used it because of what happened. But um, the volunteering was when I got closest to being happy. If you can save somebody, um, that's salvation. So I don't want to put swimming with whales in the same bracket as working in a refugee camp, because it doesn't take money. And that really does fill you with that purpose for living, which is saving somebody else or doing, you understand? So I don't want to shallow it out, the whale thing. Okay. It's only because of what happened on that. Not, I didn't really think something's meaningful on a whale thing. But can I just go back to what you said? All of this, what we're talking about purpose and you know, kindness or whatever, is when you're healthy, when you're okay. But if you've got depression, like what we're talking about, the, the suicide thing is, um, Big risk. Is a big thing. Purpose or meaning don't mean anything. If you're really ill, I know what you feel like. It's not suicide, but you, you do anything to get out of the pain. So it's, there's no answer to that, except you have to surround yourself. And I was lucky enough to get in an institution of other people who are of your tribe saying, it will pass, it will pass, it will pass. If, if you're with your people, then they're your lifeline. 
But did you think you had to be in the institution in order not in order not to kill yourself? Do you think if you hadn't been, I, then... I would have done something by accident. You know, when you're really ill, you know what I'm talking about. You just start to slow up when the traffic's coming. Accidentally on purpose. Accidentally, yeah. I couldn't jump, but you really—it's misery. It's misery. And I've had people in the audience at my shows who have. I don't know, I don't want to bum anybody out, who've had cancer and depression. And for 15 years, I've asked every one of them, which is worse, and it's always a depression. depression. Yeah. So I know what you're saying. There's no answer for this. We have another question. Should we have one more question? Um, hi, you talk about making connections as being really important. So I wondered in your situation, with all the way you suffer, how you keep those connections up and how could someone be a good friend or a partner to someone who was in a similar situation to you? How, how you can be... Yeah, how do you keep up relationships? Because it's so hard with what you're going through. With it, how do you keep your and relationship with And how can people Ed? be a good friend or a good partner to you? What, 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 how, you know, sometimes you worry, don't you? You're saying the right things to people that are suffering. How does that work? How do you manage the relationships to you, like your, like your partner and your friendships? How, how, how do you manage them? You mean when I'm ill? Yes. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't. You're just, you're just well, what can they the do earth. to help you? Is that the question? Oh, sorry. Well, uh, luckily, I married somebody who's like a, from a military background. I write about it. I jolly love the trenches. Eating their scones and spam. And so they were used to emergencies. I mean, if you can eat that shit, you can live with me. But, um, but, um, to be fair, he really loves you, Ruby. Yeah, but he, he, they take it seriously. They really know that I have a disease. Instead of going, oh, pull yourself together, you take it real seriously. You know that that person's in trouble. And then he will drive me to a clinic or get medication. So you just, you're that person's backup. You know, you're their buddy and you hold their hand but understand they're suffering like you can't even imagine, so don't try. So, so it's just about loving the person. That's all we have time for, but please can we give all a huge round of applause for Ruby and Julia, thank you very much. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Ruby Wax and was presented by Julia Samuel. The producer was Nicole Wong and the show is made by myself and Esme Bright. Our editor is John Doughty. Julia has appeared many times on the show, talking both about her own work as an author and therapist, and as an interviewer of other leading figures in the world of psychology. You'll find her episodes wherever you're listening. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com